Psalm 8 is our Old Testament reading this morning. Psalm 8 is a psalm that looks forward to, well, it looks backward, it looks backwards to the creation of man. Adam, made in God's image, set as king over his creation. Of course, Adam falls, and so God has promised a new king that he'll raise up and put as king over his creation, bearing his image. And Psalm 8, with one eye back on Adam, has another eye on, on, on forward to Christ, the one who will have all things put under his feet, even death as we'll read in a few minutes in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's give our attention to Psalm 8 here. This is God's holy word. Let's give it our full attention, brothers and sisters. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And our New Testament reading, 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve through 28. Hear God's word. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of them who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, 
it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be made subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Pray now with me. Our gracious Lord God, we rejoice in Your Word, in Your good, gracious, clear, sufficient Word of salvation for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that in ourselves we are hard-hearted and deaf and will not hear You, will not listen. So Lord, give us humility. Give us teachable hearts. Take our hearts in Your hand, O Lord, and mold them and shape them according to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make us to hear Him, we pray. In His name, Amen. Do you really believe that dead people come back to life? It's a crazy thing to believe, isn't it? That dead people come back to life. Look at the history of the world. You can look through through how many accounts of dead people Coming back to life, have you heard that are, that sound legitimate? Um, you can look at your own life experience. How many people that you have known who have passed away have come back to life? This is just basic, right? Isn't it? Dead people stay dead. They don't come back to life. In our experience, in the whole experience of our of our of our of our of our of our of our, of our uh, history. Um, by all the data, death appears to be irreversible, doesn't it? Um, it's the end. The end of the body, and there doesn't seem to be any coming back from that. that, that that's what our culture says, brothers and sisters. Um, it's also what the culture in Corinth was saying uh, around the church there in ancient Corinth that Paul is writing this letter, 1 Corinthians 2. Like as in so many other things, the church there is being influenced by the culture around them. The Greeks, uh, they, they thought of the, the physical body as a, as a negative thing in a lot of ways. They had this view that the body was bad, the soul was good. The body limited your soul. So when you died, you're being set free from that chain, that prison, and, and you're, uh, you're, 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 you're free from that. Who would want it back? And so the message that Paul is teaching of the resurrection of the dead sounded kind of crazy to them. Who would, who would, who would want that, for one? Would it even be possible for another? Now, in some ways, our culture is very different. We, I think, idolize the body in some respects. Um, we don't see death as liberation from the body, but our culture is also very similar, isn't it? We look at the resurrection of the dead and we say, that's just crazy. Um, when you die, your computer brain shuts down and it's not getting rebooted. That, that's the end. That's the view that we have. Um, Now, brothers and sisters, as uh, Christians, we know this is out of line with what the Bible teaches. We know the Bible teaches the resurrection, but it can be hard to hold on to the hope of the resurrection. Uh, It it can be hard. It can seem like it's too good to be true. It can seem like like this is just a happy ending of a fairy tale that we've dreamed up for ourselves because we don't want to face the fact that death really is the end. We cannot fathom this idea of the resurrection of the dead. We cannot picture it. Right? Who, can, who can imagine what it will be like? As the Bible teaches that Christ comes, He speaks a word, and all the graves open, and all the dead 
are raised up and in an instant restored, glorified, and, and made alive again. Who can fathom and, and understand and comp- comprehend that? Uh, it's beyond what we can imagine. So it's hard to grasp. But as one writer says, resurrection depends not on our ability to imagine it, but on the capacity of the Creator God to design and to activate it. Just because we can't imagine or fathom how this could be does not mean it's beyond the scope of what Almighty God, by His almighty power, is able to do. does not deny the fact that the One who made heaven and earth would have no trouble at all to bring about the resurrection of the dead if He so chose to do it. It is not out of the question for Him. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. He's showing us that the doctrine of the resurrection, this core teaching of the resurrection of the dead, is perfectly within the scope of God's power to accomplish. And also, brothers and sisters, and most of all this, that it's, it is the very core and foundation of our faith and that there is, there is no hope without the resurrection. That if you let that doctrine go, you lose all ground for hope and your life is really an absurdity. Paul shows us two things in the text here this morning. Uh, First, he shows us if the resurrection is not true, what that means. And then if the resurrection, because the resurrection is true, what that means. So let's, let's dive into the text here. First heading, what if Christ is not raised? This is where Paul goes. He says, here's your position. If you think Christ is not raised, here's the implications. What if Christ is really not raised from the dead? This is verses 12 through 19. What if Christ is not raised? Now, that's actually not quite what the Corinthians are arguing. Uh, They're arguing not that Christ is not raised. They're arguing that Nobody, or there, there's no resurrection of the dead, a general category of resurrection. But Paul is saying if you deny the category, you deny the instance. All right, there's big category, resurrection, and you're, if, you, if you say that's not possible, then by, by implication you're denying the resurrection of, of even one person from the dead, including our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying if you deny the whole, you deny all the constituent parts of the whole. And so... Uh, Paul is making this connection, brothers and sisters, that I think sometimes we overlook in that Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of all those who are in Christ at the last day are one event, a connected event. That Jesus' resurrection was not a standalone, bizarre phenomena that happened to him because of his unique person, but it's, it's part of the whole. It's like the opening day of the baseball season. Right? You know, opening day, you've got a whole season ahead of you. Right? It's, it's all connected. It's all part of one event. And so it is with the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It, his resurrection kicks off an inevitable process of resurrection for all those who are in Him. One writer says, when Christ rose, the church rose in Him. When Christ rose, the church rose, right? The same event is happening. He's the first fruits, as Paul will, will later say. We're going to look at this more in detail in verse 23 in our second point when we get there, looking at the hope of the resurrection. But for now, just notice this link, unbreakable link that Paul sees between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. What happens 
if you deny the resurrection of Christ. Four catastrophic consequences of denying the resurrection that were shown here. Verse 14 gives us the first one. It says, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. The word for empty there, uh, the Greek word for empty means without basis, without truth, without power. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is without basis, without truth, without power. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is without basis, without truth, without power. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul's message is a make-believe message. It's a made-up fairy tale. It's a scam, and he has been suffering for it. He's been stoned for it. He's been whipped for it. He's been shipwrecked for it. Waste of his time. Waste of his suffering. And a waste of uh, all those uh, who, who believed in it and gave themselves to it. And brothers and sisters, we can draw the implication from this that um, if, uh, if it was a waste of time for Paul, then it's a waste of time for us also. That the preaching here is empty if Christ is not in fact raised from the dead. And that your faith is empty if Christ is in fact not raised from the dead. Uh, All this is just as Shakespeare might have put it, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Empty. Connected with this, um, Paul says that if this is true, if you deny the resurrection, your faith in the gospel is empty. Uh, Paul has no patience for the very postmodern idea that, uh, that, it, that it's uh, not really whether the story you believe in is true or not, but whether it makes you feel good or not. Um, right? for, for Paul, it, it's not about the story of the resurrection giving you some hope to get through your day. Um, if the story at the end of the day is true or false really matters to him. Um, he, he's saying if you believe in a scam, you've been scammed. Uh, it's like believing in a faulty parachute. You might feel really good as you put it on. You might feel really good as you jump out of the plane, full of confidence. It's going to work. It's going to work. But if it doesn't open, if you don't have the resurrection of the dead, that's what our faith is. It doesn't make any difference in the end. This is the first consequence we're shown if Christ is not raised. Second consequence, if Christ is not raised, verse 15. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Paul saying, if Christ is not raised, then I have been false, a false witness to, to God. It, it's one thing to bear false witness to your neighbor, right? Ninth commandment. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't tell lies about your neighbor. Don't misrepresent others. Um, but, but here Paul is, an even greater sin, if Christ is not raised, is misrepresenting the gospel of God. Paul is going around and he's saying, the word of God is Christ is raised. And if Christ is not raised, then Paul is telling lies about God. It's an act of blasphemy against God himself. Consequence number three, if Christ is not raised, is in verse 17. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Christ's death, of course, the sacrifice for our sins. And Christ's resurrection is the vindication of His sacrifice. It's God accepting that sacrifice and saying, yes, 
their sins are forgiven. So if Christ was not raised, then the sacrifice was not accepted. And we are still in our sins. Still under the guilt of our sins. Still under the the, the wrath of God for our sins. Uh, Still facing hell for our sins. Still under the spiritual enslavement of our sins. If Christ is not raised, there is no resurrection power coursing through our spiritual veins. Uh, We're slaves to sin still. We are still in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 without Ephesians 2, verse 4. We are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we walk, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If Christ is not risen, you're still in your sins. No freedom in Christ. No hope and no gospel. Fourth consequence, Paul gives us verse 18. He says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ is not raised, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They've died, and that's it. Uh, They've died, and they have not gone to heaven. Uh, They died trusting in Christ, but it was a scam. They are not in heaven. Uh, They are, in fact, in hell separated from God from all eternity if the resurrection isn't true. And that's also true for, uh, for you if the resurrection of Christ isn't true. You are hellbound, and there's nothing you can do about it if he's not raised. And so Paul, Paul he, he's laying out these dreadful, catastrophic consequences, four of them, if Christ has not been raised. And then he comes to verse 19, and he summarizes it, all of this, all, all of this. He says, if in this life... We have hope in Christ. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are, of all men, the most pitiable. You can see why he'd say that if there's no resurrection. Look at the Christian life without the resurrection in it. You're just as stuck in sin as everyone else. All this suffering, humbling yourself, following Christ, self-denial, it's a waste of your time. Just go enjoy your life however you want if Christ isn't raised. If there's no resurrection, the Christian life is not a noble existential quest. It's just a waste of your time. So Paul tallies up this cost. Right? He's saying, Corinthians, do you see what you're saying when you deny the resurrection? This is what you are saying. This is what you are. This is what, by implication, you are saying. Uh, if, if there is no resurrection, then there is no victory over sin or death. Uh, you are hellbound and you are stuck in that forever. And brothers and sisters, this seems like a very depressing thing to consider on a bright Easter morning. Uh, but this is, the, this, is, this, is, this, is, uh, this is the truth of God's Word that until we realize the glorious good news of the truth of the resurrection and what we are freed from, then we will not, uh, we will not rejoice in it as, as much. Uh, without Easter morning, everything in our life is empty. Without Easter morning, everything in our life is, is futile and absurd. Uh, without, without Easter morning, um, we, are, we are left with Nietzsche. God is dead. He, he wrote these words. Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? 
Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? That's where you're left with no resurrection. No gospel, no salvation, no meaning, no life. And then Paul turns. Verses 13 to 28. And he says, but. But in fact, Christ is raised. Over against everything he's just said, right? If Christ is not raised, this, 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 this. Catastrophic. But rejoice. None of that is true. Because Christ is, in fact, raised from the dead. Uh, These verses are full of glorious hope for us. He starts, uh, Paul has already established the case for for the resurrection in the first section of chapter 15. We're, We're jumping in sort of in the middle of his argument, but back earlier in chapter 15, he laid out his case for the resurrection already. He said, Christ was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He's rooting this claim in the Word of God. Jesus is alive. God promised He would be raised from the dead. And He's been raised from the dead. God cannot lie. God has spoken this. We can have full reliance on this because it is the very Word of God, as he says in verse 4. And then he, Paul continues to, to, to describe here evidence for the resurrection and that it had so many eyewitnesses to it. He, he lists uh, those who saw it, some of them, and, and he says the, the 12 disciples also, over 500 people at one time. And he says in the text, many of them are still alive. In other words, you can, you can go ask them about it. I heard you were one of those 500 who saw Christ risen from the dead. Tell me about it. And they would tell you about him, right? This is not a myth that develops hundreds of years later on after there's no one left to deny the truth of it. This is the concrete historical fact that happened. He's alive. And there are hundreds of witnesses to him. And God himself puts his testimony to it. Jesus rose from the dead. What does this mean then? What does it mean that he is gloriously, wonderfully alive? First, Paul tells us here, it means that the kingdom of God has already begun in the resurrection of Christ. And that kingdom means eternal resurrection life. Look with me at verse 20. He says, But now Christ is risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We touched on this a little bit earlier in the sermon, that Christ's resurrection is not this one isolated event. It's, it's the first fruits. It's the first crop that you get, and you know, okay, the rest of the harvest is almost here. The rest of the harvest is coming. His resurrections, like the daffodils and the crocuses, we see already coming up, and they're promising, right? Spring's on its way. Warmer weather's coming. That's what His resurrection is for us. In the Old Testament looked forward to His resurrection. With, with this in mind. It saw the resurrection of the dead as the great event of the coming of the kingdom of God in the last days. Isaiah 25, verse 8 uh, says, uh, says, God will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah the prophet looking forward by the inspiration of the Spirit and he sees God is going to bring about the resurrection of His people from the dead in the last days when He brings His kingdom. And, uh, and, and now Paul, Paul has seen this and he's, he's looking back at those Scriptures and he's saying, see, the resurrection promised, the kingdom promised is coming. 
because Christ, the first fruits, has been raised. It's only a matter of time, therefore, till all those in Christ are also raised up from the dead. Brothers and sisters, do you see what a wonderful difference this makes when you know this? That Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. It turns death into sleep for the Christian. Notice how Paul describes this here in verse 20. He refers to those who have died as those who have fallen asleep. It's not a euphemism. It's the truth for him. It is the very truth of God that for the Christian, death is like sleep. Death means, for the Christian, rest. Means you're putting off the body of sin. You're done fighting and struggling and wrestling with doubt and disobedience and you're set free. You're in the presence of God in your, in, in your soul, in His presence in heaven immediately at the point of death. And so you are at rest. It also means that uh, you're going to wake up. Right? Death is like sleep and that for the Christian, your body will wake up as well. Death does not separate the believer's body from our Lord Jesus Christ. Our larger catechism has this wonderful way of describing this. It says this, even in death, our bodies continue united with Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds till at the last day they be again united to their souls. That's what the resurrection does for you as a Christian. You know with all confidence I am His, body and soul, in life and in death. And even when I die, or those whom I love who are in Christ die, and their bodies are laid in the ground, Christ has them. He's tucking them in bed. And He's going to come with a word and wake them up. Alive again. How can God do all this? How can, loved ones, how can He do this? Not, not how can He have the power to how can he have the grace to? We do not deserve this resurrection. We do not deserve these promises. The resurrection of Christ from the dead. Guarantee of our resurrection from the dead. We, we don't deserve it, do we? De- death is what we are owed. And death is what God's justice and wrath demands. Paul goes on. He tells us here. He takes us, uh, he takes us into the engine room to show us what's driving this glorious truth. Verses 21 to 22. Here he tells us what the cause of this resurrection is. He says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul's taking us into the deep inner logic of of our salvation. How can it be that a sinner is raised up to new life in Christ and receives the eternal heavenly reward? He shows us these two federal heads, these two representatives, these two giants. Adam on the one hand, and then our Lord Jesus Christ on the other. And he says, there's the first man, Adam. Uh, he's, he, he, he's, he's the father of all mankind. He's the representative of all mankind. God makes a covenant with him. If you obey me, you shall be raised up to eternal blessed life. If you disobey me, you shall be exiled and you shall die. 
And God makes that covenant with that first Adam. And, uh, and, and everyone who will descend from Adam is represented by him. He's like the team captain, right? He's out there and he represents the whole team. And we're all counted in him. And so Adam, he falls into sin. He disobeys God and he earns death for himself. And so in him, the whole human race, you and I and everybody else who's ever been born except one, represented by him, sin in his sin and die in his death. In him, we all sinned. In him, we all died. And it's just, it's what we deserve. But now there's a second Adam. There's a, there's, a, there's a new man, a better man. The last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. The new team captain, the new representative. And, and uh, God makes a covenant with him. If you obey me, I will raise you up to everlasting life. And I will raise up in you all those who have you as their representative. I'll give you uh, a great a reward of, 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 a, of, a, of men and women, boys and girls from this whole world who are raised up to resurrection life with you. So our Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, He comes and He takes the death of our sin that we deserve. Even though He's sinless, innocent, righteous, spotless, pure, He dies Adam's death. He bears our curse. He takes the wrath of God. He takes all of that away. And then He earns by His perfect obedience resurrection life. And so God raises him up from the dead on the third day. And he does it not only for him, but also for all those who are in him. And brothers and sisters, this means that all those things we saw under that first heading about what if Christ is not raised, right? None of that is true. The opposite of all those terrible things is true. Christ is raised. And if you are in Christ, the great second Adam then our preaching is not empty. And your faith is not empty. You are not in your sins. You are forgiven of all of them and justified and set free. And eternal life in Christ is yours. The second thing that we see Christ's resurrection means. So we've seen that Christ's resurrection means that... uh, the kingdom of God, the resurrection life in that kingdom of God has begun in Christ already. Uh, the second thing we see is that that resurrection life, this kingdom of God that's coming in Christ, is going to not only have come now in part, but it's going to become, in, in, in all its fullness, it's going to be consummated by Christ at the last day. Verses 22-28 here. Um, Christ's victory on Easter morning is going to be completed in Christ's victory on the day of His last coming. Christ's victory on Easter morning is going to be completed at Christ's victory in His final coming. The two are connected. Uh, A a wonderful analogy, it's probably overused, uh, but it's still very helpful, is uh, D-Day and VE Day, World War II in Europe, right? D-Day, the Allied forces invade, they land on the beaches of Normandy, and, and, and once they've got that established, the question mark over victory is gone. You know who's going to win this war. It's going to be, you know, a decisive victory, but it's going to be a long time till VE Day comes. It's going to be a lot of fighting till that final victory and the surrender of the enemy comes, but it's guaranteed to come now. And that's Christ's resurrection. Victory. But that victory will be completed, consummated, with His final coming. 
Now, brothers and sisters, that means that we are living in the in-between of those things. And so I think we often feel a jarring kind of dissonance between our lived experience and the promise of resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead, right? Easter morning, he rose from the dead. But the church has gone on suffering. Resurrection life in, in Christ poured out on us by his spirit, but we go on suffering. Generation after generation of Christians continues to die and wait and wait. Um, and in the meantime, as we wait, uh, we, uh, we, we struggle at times. Is he really coming back for me? Um, is this really worth it? Is his resurrection power really at work in me? Will it really be completed and consummated? So we're given this, this glorious promise, brothers and sisters, when you feel that discouragement, remember the certainty of the promise that Easter gives you, that God gives you in, in the Gospel here, that Jesus Christ reigns now. This is where Paul goes. He talks about it. He talks about the, the power of Christ, the authority of Christ, as all his enemies are put under his feet. Every last foe who opposes God and opposes Christ is being put under his feet. And we look around, eyes of this world, eyes of the flesh, we, don't, we, we struggle to see that. Right? We're a pilgrim people beset all around. But with the eyes of faith, we look at the promise of God that all his enemies will be put under his feet. That he will not stop until he has conquered all. And we hold on to that promise. Everything that opposes him will be defeated. Including, last of all, as we're promised here in this passage, including death itself. Death is his enemy. It's a wonderful thing to remember, isn't it? Death is God's enemy. And it's one of those enemies that he will defeat and crush. That it's, that it's the last of all enemy that he will conquer. But Christ hates death. He rages at death. He did it at the tomb of Lazarus. And he's going to continue to rage at death until he crushes it forever. Death tried to destroy him, but he rose from the dead, the great conqueror. And he promises loved ones to us that one day he will finally, fully, forever conquer death. Every last vestige and outpost of it. And so, brothers and sisters, you have this wonderful promise in your hands as a Christian. If you're in Christ, yes, you continue to suffer and loved ones continue to die and your own death is getting closer by the day. But you have the guarantee. His resurrection guarantees yours. So hang on to the promise. Death cannot harm you if you are in Christ. You are immortal in Christ. He that believes in me shall never die, Jesus says. So you can, you can talk like the 17th century poet John Donne when he said, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. This is our promise as Christians. This is what we have in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no message in the world that can compete with that. There's no message more 
precious and more hope-filled and more certain than that. There's wonderful comfort here. But brothers and sisters, notice that the comfort is not just given to all. Um, The comfort is offered to all. The gospel is offered to all. But you must be in Christ. If you are in Adam, it's not true for you. The resurrection is not for you. But, but, But if you turn to Christ, put your faith and confidence in Christ, then it's all freely yours. You don't earn it. You're, you're given it by the free grace of God and, and you have this sweet comfort of the gospel forever. As we close, finally, one, 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 one very final thing. Why, why would God do all of this? This glorious salvation, resurrection, eternal life, the gospel, this, this wonderful good news. Why? why? Why is God doing all of this? It's for our comfort, it's for our salvation, yes, but there's an even higher goal. And that's where the end of this passage takes us. Uh, takes us to the very glory of God. It tells us that the purpose of all of this is not finally, ultimately, about us and our comfort and our salvation, as wonderful as that is, but it's about the glory of the God who, 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 who uh, dreamed up this glorious plan. And who executed this wonderful plan. Notice how Paul moves here. He's focusing on the kingship of God, the glory of God, as he brings the section to a close in verses 27 through 28. He reminds us here of the promise that Jesus is going to reign until all things are put under his feet, until the whole universe is bowed before him. And he quotes Psalm 8, verse 6. We read Psalm 8 earlier. It says, uh, You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, including death, right? This is a promise that Christ himself will reign over all things. Uh, Psalm 8 is about uh, how God made man to be his, his vice regent, his steward over creation, a king under him over this realm. And Adam fails in that. And Jesus, the second Adam, wonderfully succeeds. And so God is giving him the universe. Every tribe, tongue, nation will bow to Him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that He is Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, and He shall reign forever. And then our Lord Jesus Christ, once all is conquered, is going to give it up to His Father as a gift. And God will be, the text says, all in all. This is the purpose of all of this gospel, this resurrection, this salvation. The goal of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and and all of it is the glory of God. That He would be all in all. That we would see the glorious things, the wonderful things He's done. And worship Him and rejoice in Him and thank Him and praise Him forever and ever to all eternity. Because He is the living God who raises up the dead. Let's pray. Lord, to You be the glory forever and ever. From you, through you, and to you are all things, even the resurrection. And we rejoice, Lord, that you and your great grace and kindness to us in Christ have saved us and will save us. Lord, turn our hearts towards you. Fill us with your grace. Fill us with faith in the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. And raise us up with him as you've promised on the last day. It's in his name we pray. Amen.